Thank you, Ruthann and Anita, for ministering in music. As they were singing, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still and know that I am God. We live in a world that has all kinds of gadgets, tries to you know, keep our mind running 24-7. I think there's a need since the beginning of time just to be still. And know that I am God. In the beginning of time, God established one out of seven to be a day of rest. For Israel, he established all kinds of feasts and days, you know, where they were kind of to step back. And I don't think that has changed in the New Testament in terms of, you know, the need for rest, the need to step back, and the need to just stop and reflect. Since the beginning of time, humans have struggled with idols. And one of the reasons humans have struggled with idols is for the simple reason that the enemies we face as believers are all idolatrous to the core. We want to look at several passages of Scripture tonight, as time permits, to consider the enemies we face that would lure us away from God to lure us to idols. Now let's take our Bibles and go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. John writes the book of 1 John so that there may be complete joy. He writes so that people would know, believers would know that they are believers in Christ. And he basically gives a series of tests whereby one may know that they are believers in Christ. And in chapter 2, look at verses 15, 16, and 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that is in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, come not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. As you reflect on the passage and the context, one of the tests of where we stand with God would be how we respond to the world. Now, a couple of questions I want you to respond to in light of the text. What is true of the person who loves the world in light of the passage we read? Always seeking more? Let's be a little more specific, though. Pardon? Okay, the love of the Father is not in him. We're never satisfied if we're pursuing the world, but he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what is in the world, according to the text? What is in the world?
Okay, cravings of what? Okay, cravings of, first of all, sinful man. Now think about cravings that humans have. Today in Times Leader, and it was in this week, and it's been in, you know, as we have more and more murders in Wilkesbury. I think this is number 13, is it, in Wilkesbury? Why do we have them? You know, people respond to why we have them. It boils down to human nature. Cravings of the sinful man. You walk in a store, and you say, I don't need anything, and walk out. Not usually. You get into an argument. Why do you get into an argument? Because of the cravings within you. You know, you want to win that argument. Cravings of the sinful man, they're there. What else is in the world? The cravings of the sinful man. What's the next one? The lust of the eye. Do you ever stop to think about how much is sold through the eye? Do you ever see them try to sell a truck or a car with what the world would consider ugly people? No, lust of the eye. The eye is very, very powerful. Eve saw that the tree, you know, was, the fruit was good to the eye, pleasing to the eye. Stop and think about how many times we're tempted through the eye. What's the third one? What else is in the world? Okay, boasting of what one has and does. You take a political campaign. What is a political campaign? Basic, basically boasting about how great I am, and I'm not knocking politicians in any way. I'm just saying, you know, it's basically based on that. Stop and think about how much boasting of what one has and does takes place in our world in the average day. Think about your own life, how tempted you are to boast about what you have or what you do. See, the world is not so much a matter of things, but a thought process. The world basically is a thought process that lets God out. As I you know, read about what happens in Wilkes-Barre and recently was another situation where some evil was being dealt with, we rarely hear people say the real root problem of our nation, of our families, is the world. We don't hear that. But that is part of it. How does what is in the world, or where does what is in the world come from? Where does what is in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what one has and does, where does it come from? Okay, from the world. From a pattern of thought, a system that lets out God. So when you watch TV, every ad that you see, at the end of the commercial, it says, now stop. Don't buy this product for at least a week and pray about it and seek God beforehand. No, the ad is basically saying, you'll be content only if you get this. 
now. No, it's a system of thought that lets God out. Where does it come from? The uh, cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eye, the boasting of what one has and does, come not from the Father, but from the world. No, it's kind of idolatrous. What will happen to the world and its desires? Okay, it will pass away. It's going to pass away. The world and its desires will pass away. That is why things and relationships are tools for God's glory, not idols. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So it's not amount of, the amount of things we have, the amount of toys we have that's a problem. It's our hard attitude towards them. You can have a wealthy person who uses his or her things for God's glory. You can have a person that has very little and he or she may use his or her things for self. But he says, don't love the world or anything in the world. Don't love the world or anything in the world. Why? Because it's going to pass away. And I want you to notice, do not love. We live in a world, we have to contend with the world. How do we respond to it? One of the enemies we face is the world. It is very, very strong. We live in the world. Very strong. Let's go to another passage. Romans chapter 3. In Romans, Paul deals with a variety of things. He begins with sin, and then he moves to Christ. In Romans chapter 3, we'll begin reading with verse 9. In chapter 1, he talked about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Made plain to men, but they reject that. And this conclusion about humans is found in verses 9 through 18. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? That is, are we Jews any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. See, the Jews received Scripture. Scripture came through the Jews. Are they better? They're still under sin. Christ came. He was a Jew. Are the Jews any better? He says he's concluded that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I want to emphasize what he says in verse 10. There is no one righteous. I'm really not that bad. I really didn't start that bad. 
There's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Well, you say, I always was interested in God. You didn't start that way. So question, what is the nature of all humans? What is the nature of all human, all humans? Pardon? Sinful. They're not righteous. They don't understand. They don't seek God. They have turned away and together become worthless. We tend to classify people. You know, we got guys like Hitler. And then we got you and me. And then we got, you know, the criminals that we run into. You're in the same boat with Hitler, and I'm in the same boat with Hitler. We talk about murders taking place in Wilkesbury. Whoever the murderers are, you're in the same boat as those people. We don't like to hear that, do we? All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one righteous. No, not even one. So occasionally I get up to Luzerne County Prison, you know, and visit some people in there, and there have been occasions where I was, you know, in the cell block. And recently I was visiting someone there, and uh, I asked him what block he was on, and oh, he says, you know, I'm just across the hall. Then he went on to say, well, that's where, I guess you would say, supposedly the worst guys are. In God's economy, all humans are equally sinful. There are none that are worse as far as their nature. Now, the way they manifest that nature, there's a difference. But we're all separated from God. We don't seek God. I think we need to grasp that. All people are dead by nature. Can't change that. Describe the words of humans in verses 13 and 14. How does Paul describe the word, words of humans in verses 13 and 14? Roads are open graves. Now think about that in the context of living in a culture where they did not embalm. Remember Lazarus raised from the dead and they said, well, he already stinks. No, we don't want to do that. Where you don't embalm, someone dies, you bury quickly. Their throats are open graves. What they say isn't very nice. Their tongues practice deceit. Randy, have you ever told a lie in your life? Who taught you to lie? JT, do you ever tell a lie? Who taught you to lie? We don't have to be taught to lie, do we? It's human nature. Ashley, do you ever pick on your sister or brother? Of course not. Do you ever tell a lie? <laughs> yeah. 
you know, do we have to teach our children to fight? No. You know, we don't have to teach them to say unkind words and so on. Deceit, the poison of viper is on their lips. Oh, we can get vicious. Humans can get vicious with words. We may never hurt them physically, but we can kill them verbally. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. And if it wasn't for God at work in life, there'd be a lot of cursing and bitterness. There is enough already. Describe the action of humans in verses 15 through 18. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, what's wrong with our world? Why do we have so much evil? Why is there so much crime? Romans 3, 10 through 18. Well, if we educated more and we did a host of other things, we wouldn't have so much evil and much crime. The crime problem goes beyond all of them. We're dealing with sin. Who do humans worship? Who would you say the people in Romans 3, 10 through 18 worship? Themselves. Themselves. Let's go to another passage, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We find that Jesus has been baptized by John. And verse 16 of chapter 3 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up, went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven op- was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting in him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now keep in mind when the Bible was written, there wasn't chapters as we have today. You can't understand chapter 4, 1 through 11, apart from grasping chapter 3, 16 and 17. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Who led Jesus to be tempted? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, it would be the serpent, the devil, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Chapter 4. Matthew 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, was Jesus the Son of God? How do you know? Pardon? God just... Where was it said? How did Jesus know he was the Son of God? God said it. If Jesus had turned the stones to bread, what would he have been saying? Satan is my master. I don't believe what God said, that I'm the Son of God. I have to prove it. 
Jesus already said it. I'm sorry, God said it at the end of chapter 3. Verse 4, Jesus answered, or yeah, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now it's interesting here, the enemy is using scripture. The enemy quotes scripture, but if you go back to the Psalms where he quotes that from, it is out of context. We won't do that tonight, but you will find it is out of context. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Jeff already implied the answer, what is Satan's desire in the first two temptations? What does he want Christ to do? Worship him. And if follow his leading, and if Jesus had done that, what would he have been saying about what God said? God's a liar. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. What is Satan's desire in a third temptation? Okay, he would say, you know, I'll give you all this I'll give you if you bow down and worship me. But what was his desire? I mean, okay, worship. To worship him, Satan. He says, if you worship me, I'll give you all this, as Joe said. And Jesus responds, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Who is Satan concerned about? Who or what does he worship? Himself. See, the enemy, Satan, is idolatrous. The world system is idolatrous. And our own sinful nature is idolatrous. Every enemy that the believer battles with is idolatrous to the core. The enemies we face as believers within and without are idolatrous to the core. I'm not making blanket statements here, but uh, I want you to think about them. Most, maybe that's too strong, but I'll use it, of what you see on TV will tend to pull you towards being idolatrous. Why? Much of it is of the world, of Satan, of people who are not in love with God, so their sinful nature comes out. I'm not saying all, I'm just saying beware of that. Much advertising is 
idolatrous will pull you to idolatry because it ties in with Satan, the world, and, you know, human nature. The enemies we face within and without are idolatrous to the core. If we don't confront idolatry, are we merely playing religious games? We don't confront idolatry. Are we merely playing religious games? I tend to think we probably are. Now keep in mind that Israel in Exodus 32 was worshiping God with a golden calf. They were idolatrous. And you trace Israel's history until the time of Christ. Over and over again, their primary sin was idolatry. But yet, they claimed to worship God. We have to confront that. Heart idols. The world in which we live, we look at the world and we say, oh, I recognize that. But how about our heart idols? We've got to confront them. So a parent who has a wayward kid cries themselves to sleep quite often. Their wayward child has become an idol. God, you've got to change them. A man or a woman or a couple take a deep financial reversal and they just fall apart, revealing their heart. Money was their idol or things was their idol. You go back to the Great Depression and when the stock market crashed years ago, there were many people that killed themselves at that point in time just showing their heart idol. If we don't confront idolatry, we will interpret what we're taught and what we read, what we hear through the grid or the mental mindset of our idol. Now, let's suppose things and money are your idol. Well, you won't, you know, it may not, you don't say that, but, you know, you like to have the newest and the best, etc. So you hear that there's a great economic crash coming. Ah, oh, what am I going to do? I've got to take all these steps to preserve. Beware. What's that showing about your idol? See, you're going to hear things and interpret them in light of your idol. Oh, so the economy goes belly up, and I lose half my investments or more, and you know, other things happen. God's still on the throne. He's working out his purpose. He still loves me. He's still my God. You interpret it in light of God rather than the idol. But if we don't confront idolatry, we'll interpret most of what we're taught, what we read, what we hear through the grid of our idol. Another example, and this comes from the religious community. Religious leaders. There are religious leaders today, just as in Jesus' day, 
that went bigger and better and success. They may be big or small at this point in time. So they produce, they write, and so on to try to get bigger and better. So how do they interpret everything? How will it help me to be bigger, to be better? How will it help this church to be bigger, to be better? Rather than how will we love God more? See, our idol determines how we interpret things. If we're loving God, we you know, see things through that grid. As we think about idols, when we think about communion, we're intentionally having communion after the sermon because in Christ, the world has been defeated. In Christ, the enemy, Satan, has been defeated. In Christ, our sinful nature has been defeated. Oh, we still battle with them, but the victory has been won through Christ. The text Holy says, just listen as I read from Hebrews. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for one time, or for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The one sacrifice of Christ defeated the world. We live in it, we battle with it, we struggle, but the victory has been won. We battle with the cravings of our sinful nature, but we're in Christ. The battle has been won. We battle with Satan, but we know he has been defeated. His ultimate defeat will not take place until the future. And as we think about communion... Think about the past. In Christ, we have forgiveness. In Christ, we have victory. Think about the present in Christ. We're members of the body of Christ. We have relationships. We can apply to one another's. Think about the future. There's glory. And we will be, we will be with Christ. So if we take, partake of the bread symbol symbol of Christ's broken body, as we partake of the cup symbol, a symbol of Christ shed blood. As we partake of communion tonight, I want you to think at least two things. Victory. It's been won. We don't need to win it. It's done. We don't have to do. It's done. It's done. We're not doing. It's done. The world has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. Our own sinful nature has been defeated. It's done. Secondly, think about the fact that we're part of the body of Christ. Those who have come to faith in Christ are part of the body of Christ. We're one with them. And as we encourage one another, spur one another on, love one another, and so on, we grow and mature. So we're going to do communion a little different tonight than we normally do it. To give us time to pause and reflect and think about the body of Christ. I'm going to have you come forward. And as you partake of communion, 
We can do the bread symbol and the cup at the same time. We'd like you to come as a family. You know, if you're here with family or if you're here alone, come yourself. But I want you to observe people as they come. Thank God for them. Pray for them. And if you have children and they're not partaking communion, you can still bring them to the front. And you know, you can serve yourself and not the kids. But I want you to think about the body of Christ and the victory we have in Christ. And if you're an extended family and want to come together, that would be good also. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even though we battle against the world system, Satan, and our own sinful nature, that the battle has been won, it's over, it's done. We don't have to do any longer, it's done. I'm grateful that we can be reminded of that through the bread symbol, broken body of Christ, through the cup symbol of Christ shed blood. Desire your blessing upon our time of reflecting upon what we have in Christ and the victory we have. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So what we can do